Classical music is vibrant, alive, and ever-changing. It's then and it's now. It's filled with the creativity and spirit of artists from all backgrounds and experiences. And it's as much in Carol Okoye Uba's dance as it is Beethoven's Fifth. Noteworthy stories by WDAV Classical Public Radio celebrate the rich diversity of classical music's past, present, and future, and they're hosted by me, Loki Karuna. Check out this week's Noteworthy Artists and catch up on past episodes at noteworthyclassical.org. I'm Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, shout out to the returning and longtime listeners. Your support is invaluable. To new listeners, thanks for stopping by. Triloquy is a podcast built to decolonize classical music. Each week I bring in commentary from the field that engages the shifting tides of so-called classical music. I share interviews with folks in and outside of the field who I think are doing a great job of broadening the general dialogue of what classical music is and should be. And I close each week with a triloquy where I offer my true and real take for the week on various topics. For more information on this show, to check out past opuses, and to donate, go over to our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-I.org. In this week's triloquy at the end of the show, I'm going to talk about who I'm planning to vote for in next year's presidential race. Not meaning to uh, start the drama early, but hey, I, I heard an interview that uh, I have to share a little bit uh with y'all. So just putting myself out there, I'm sure y'all will have opinions and I appreciate them all. Okay. <laughs> Before that, uh, I'll share my chat with Chris Jenkins. He has a, a few titles over at the Oberlin Conservatory, including Associate Dean for Academic Support Liaison to the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, uh, and Visiting Assistant Professor of Musicology. Uh, well, he wrote a book that we're going to dive into that's definitely in line with this idea of decolonizing classical music. Can't wait to share that with y'all. But for right now, we're going to go over to theguardian.com. They released an op-ed that caught my eye last week, and I thought I'd uh, pull it in for y'all, put it on y'all's radar. The title of this is Classical Musicians Are Clone-Like These Days. I need my boom button from last season uh, because I'm sure that one hit a few nerves. Classical musicians are clone-like these days. I'll read just a little of it here. It says, young classical musicians starting out in the in their careers are sacrificing creativity and individuality and becoming clone-like, um, urged on by music schools teaching a formulaic syllabus. Uh, it goes on to say here, part of the problem lies with music conservatories that stifle creativity through over-teaching and a worship of professors. Teachers are quite often taking the easy way out and imposing the same technical approach on each student. Quote, every kid wants to play because of the love of music, but quite often they've got that beaten out of them and they're having to subscribe to a formulaic syllabus. It basically is a brain and heart turnoff. Um, yeah, so I have to say that this isn't necessarily my experience. I mean, on a broad scale, when it comes to repertoire, especially orchestral repertoire, I think there's a little bit of that. But when it came to my one on one lessons and that sort of thing, I can't really say that was uh, my experience. But, you know, I'm also not a violin player. I, I really feel like this is uh, pointing at the, the whole violin culture as it's out there. Um, really, the reason I'm not dismissing these statements completely is at the end of the day, the proof is in the pudding. If you've ever taken an orchestral audition, you know that there is zero room for creativity or individuality. Certain, Certainly no room for something like improvisation or innovation. Uh, now, just today, um, a companion piece was published that attempted to dismantle this article. It's over at violinist.com. Y'all can find it there. And it actually cites a number of uh, solo artists who are reaching beyond this clone status that's uh, being claimed in the first uh, article. Artists 
who are actually innovating. Well, I'm bringing this up because one of the violinists who's mentioned in that companion piece is a colleague of mine. Shout out to Curtis Stewart. Uh, The first thing I'll say uh, is that he's definitely innovating. He's been on Triloquy before, so y'all probably, you know, know him and his work. But the fact is, he didn't get into the school of his dreams because he wasn't a clone. He'll he'll tell you this story on his own, and it's, you can even read about it on his website. Those are my those aren't his words; those are mine. Uh, but the point, you know, that I'm making and and bringing that up is that. Uh, to call out this copycat nature of our conservatories and teaching institutions, you know, that's that comes with a certain context when you're uh, pointing to the uh, the people who fall outside of this norm, sort of the uh, anomalous, uh, uh, the, you know, the the violin players who just kind of stick out of this this clone norm. Yes, they are there, but you know, they they had to fight for the place that they have now because of this sort of cookie cutter culture. If the musicians who are doing the most innovative work uh, out there, if they were being given the orchestral jobs, orchestras would sound different. Repertoire would be different. Uh, But at the end of the day, as it is, the job is to sound as much like the tradition as possible. And Chris Jenkins is trying to shift that. That's my segue for this week. You can go uh, find uh, uh, that article uh, at theguardian.com and let me know what y'all think. But in the meantime, uh, my chat was with Chris. So his newest book is called Assimilation Versus Integration in Music Education. It explores not only the problematic nature of the one-size-fits-all model of conservatories and music schools, but also how that uh, one-size-fits-all sort of culture, um, social is very damaging to students of color specifically. You can't engage a student of color, certainly not a black student, in the same way that you engage everyone else for a number of reasons. What comes to mind immediately for me is that many of us, and again by us I mean black musicians, we're first generation classical musicians. Uh, So, you know, certain household practices and expectations that lead a student to a conservatory aren't always there when you're, you know, talking about diverse populations. I took my first private lesson as an undergraduate, and I was lucky enough to have a teacher who knew what to do with that. But that isn't always the case at these conservatories. You know, and I could go on to talk about language and um, ways of engaging just all of the microaggressions that uh, black students and students of color have to deal with at these conservatories, uh, uh, not to mention in the in the uh, in the teaching itself and the way that things like music theory are taught. Anyway, it, it gets deep. Um, but uh, Chris really uh, digs into that. It's a, a really great book. I was excited to uh, read it myself uh, and to have him on the uh, on the show this week. His thoughts um, on how to decolonize music education are real. So uh, I, I hope y'all will check that out and enjoy this conversation. Uh, the last time I saw Chris in person, we were actually in Arizona participating in a project uh, hosted by Arizona State University. So to get us into this chat, I thought we enjoy a performance by one of their local orchestras. These are members of the Tucson Symphony Orchestra uh, performing a work called Tides of Resilience. It's actually a piece by a six, a then anyway, 16-year-old composer, Ryan Brunswick. So shout out to Ryan uh, and shout out to Chris Jenkins. Hope y'all enjoy this conversation. from your perspective, how engaged are conservatories in the conversation of white supremacy really being at the core of of the practice, at least today? In my experience, they're not at all engaged yet. That discussion is really in its infancy. And I think that has to do with uh, often a persistent misunderstanding of the term, that when we're talking about white supremacy, we're not talking about whether or not there's a Confederate flag in the room. We're talking about the elevation of um, mainstream white norms, standards, values, um, things of this nature. And I think that's a lot more difficult for uh, especially well-meaning white musicians, many of whom think of themselves as liberals. It's very difficult for them to understand the extent to which their own beliefs may be perpetuating and then uh, supporting white supremacy. 
Uh, and that's been my experience, certainly in, in conservatories. You know, um, I had a, a journey, I would say, of coming to understand much more deeply what it is that I, I do as a musician and as someone who supports students of color in a conservatory. And that was very difficult. And really, it was because of my students and because of the nature of Oberlin, where I teach, that I was able to have that journey. But, you know, I started off and I had students who would come and, and tell me their experiences and their struggles they were going through and the microaggressions they were experiencing or the, or the macroaggressions they were experiencing, right? Mm -hmm. And my standard response was always, you have to be tough. You have to deal with this. Strong Black people have dealt with this for generations. This is what we do, right? Um, and they would tell me things like, but I don't want to do that. Why mm -hmm. do I have to do that? And of course, at first I thought, well, these students are weak, right? As older people usually do. Why aren't they tough enough to deal with this? And it took me a while to realize that it really, they were right, that I was the one who was wrong because they were simply demanding the right to be free from having to do that, from having to adjust themselves, from having to assimilate into the system. And they were saying, why can't we be accepted as we are if we're being recruited into the system? Um, and, you know, the fact that I think conservatories are struggling to deal with curricular diversification, they're struggling to deal with hiring, uh, they're struggling to deal with many aspects that are racialized of the conservatory experience, that really speaks to the extent to which that conversation around white supremacy and the understanding of white supremacy is part of the everyday fabric of American life and American culture, including classical music, uh, the extent to which that conversation is just beginning. Is I want I want to pull on the thread of this idea of oh we went through it so y'all need to go through it as well you know that extends far beyond the conservatory but you know for the sake of this conversation how much of your work is dismantling that for the older generation of let's say uh, black teachers or or black musicians do you consider that a part of this work as well that definitely is a part of this work uh, but also I'm dismantling that in myself. Because I've only really become aware of this in the past few years, right? Uh, the extent to which we all build up these tolerances, right, to the things we experience. And then we come to account for those as a natural part of life and even a benefit. And they may be, you know, I'm more resilient than most of my white colleagues, I, I think, right? As we are, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a benefit. And also it was the result of experiences that I didn't have to go through and that students today don't have to go through either. So I would say that isn't work that I've really started with any of my black colleagues just because I'm starting to understand it myself. I don't yet have the, um, the leverage or the vantage point to tell other people how to go through, through that journey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're gonna get back to um, well-meaning black musicians a little later on in this conversation, but uh, as much as I sometimes enjoy uh, throwing all of the so-called classical field into the same bucket. Uh, it's hard not to recognize that institutions like orchestras are expanding their offerings for uh, more diverse audiences, whether it's movie concerts, you know, we're seeing a lot of orchestras take on uh, hip hop pop shows and those sorts of things. But I think it's still safe to say that we don't quite see that from the conservatories. What do you think contributes to that lack of cultural equity, specifically within conservatories? Yeah, so the reason that I would push back a little bit on that idea, the idea that conservatories, or rather that orchestras are beginning to diversify is, is partly because I think the main or a main impediment in conservatories to diversification is the reliance on the structure of the orchestra in many ways. Uh, and I'll expand upon what that means, right? So. In one way, uh, conservatory admissions is very reliant on the orchestra. People don't really know this, but who is able to get in in a given year to the conservatory is dependent on what the orchestra needs, right? Because the large ensemble has to be filled. So um, also in theory and history, right? We study composers, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, who have written large scale symphonic works with the idea that all students are gonna play those works at some point. Right. So the orchestral rep, the standard rep, to a certain extent, guides what we do in our academic courses. Right. And then in terms of style, we need to learn the style of the composers that we will play in orchestra, usually. Right. Um, so to a fairly large extent, oh, also because 
orchestral playing does not require or forbids improvisation on the mm-hmm. solo level, right? That can't be a requirement because students are presumably are going to get orchestra jobs, right? So the curriculum is also often uh, constructed with that end goal in mind, right? So the orchestra determines who gets in, how they get in. It determines to some extent what we study while we're there. And it determines what the faculty want us to do and how they structure the curriculum, right? Now, besides that, I would argue also that uh, as Bruno Nettle observed in um, Heartland Excursions, talking about the structure of the orchestra, it itself has a relationship with racial capitalism in that uh, the way that it's set up in terms of the rank and file, the principal players, uh, the extreme hierarchy, right? Nettle observed that it mirrors many economic systems that are exploitative, like the plantation system, the military, the factory, that idea of extreme specialization, right? And and the idea that the individual player uh, cannot actually get together with other players and put together the entire construction, right? Only the conductor gets to do that. So there's extreme reliance on a central authority figure. All that is anti-community. And it's anti-community in a way that I think is antithetical to a lot of the cultural values that uh, African-American and Latinx students are bringing into conservatories. And let me ask you this, because you made that, uh, you cited a comparison of the orchestra (laughs) to the plantation. And that's something that I can hear, something that I can dialogue with. But as we both know, there are so many people who would have an emotional or visceral reaction to that. What are your ideas on um, getting past the emotional aspect of these dialogues and really getting down to the, the nuts and bolts of what needs to be changed and what needs to be engaged? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, And part of the reason that I've been called upon sometimes to engage in these kind of dialogues is because uh, for better or worse, or accurately or not, I have a reputation for being being able to soft pedal certain (laughs) kinds of conclusions like this one. But the more I talk about these things, the more I find it difficult to do that. So let me try to do that. Um, You know, there are many aspects of structures in American society that are deeply hierarchical because we are accustomed to that. That's how our economic system works, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, It's organized that way because it's most efficient. And that in and of itself does not have to be a negative. I think there are disadvantages to it and there are advantages as are the case with any social arrangement, right? Um, I think that there are opportunities for a kind of music making and a social arrangement that is more communal and uh, is more aligned, I think, with the values of most musicians, because musicians are by nature communal, most of us, right? We want to be in community with other musicians. We want, we want, want to make a sound together. I mean, musicians often don't like playing in orchestra. I hope that isn't a big secret that I'm letting out. <laughs> I don't think it is. <laughs> Right. And, and why is that? Because we're not in community with our, with our stand partners sometimes. Right. So we want that. Um, and from that perspective, you know, I would say it, it, it's not a matter of saying the orchestra is bad. Hierarchy is bad. The conductor is bad. No, that's there's no need for all that. What there is a need for is to be open to exploring other ways of musicing and to be open to the idea that if we can construct new musical arrangements that mirror social arrangements that are more communal in nature, Perhaps we'll all be a lot happier. And uh, it's something that these conversations are ones that most of us, if not nearly all of us, don't engage until after we're through the machinery of it all. I wonder if you'll talk a little bit uh, about your musical trajectory as both a student uh, and a professional. Yeah, so I feel fairly qualified to talk about conservatories because I've, I've been a student at three of them. I started at Harvard, and then I went to New England Conservatory for my master's, and then Manhattan School of Music for a certificate. Um, And then I played in New York for a long time with various organizations, including Sphinx. I was a laureate in 2005, a third place laureate, uh, played with with them in various incarnations. And um, at a certain point, I knew that something for me was, was missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the case for, for everybody, and that's totally fine. And some people, it is the case for them. 
And if that is the case for you who are listening out there, then I would encourage you to develop other skills you have, because I think it's really, really useful and important for you as a person. But I actually went back and got a master's in international affairs at Columbia. And then I lived in, in the Middle East for a year in Palestine, uh, running the School of Music. And then I was recruited for my job at Oberlin. So I came to Oberlin with a wide array of experiences and a lot of education, pretty overeducated, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I was still totally unprepared for the kind of ideology that I encountered there that changed the way that I think, which to me speaks to the extent to which um, our education is so narrow in, in music, right? Uh, in conservatories, it's so, so very, very narrow. At Harvard too, my education was very conservative, right? It was very urtext, score-based. We do what Beethoven said. I mean, I'm not saying we should not do what Beethoven said, but we can be creative, right? I think a little bit, I think he would want that. Uh, anyway, I did all that. And after four years at Oberlin, I applied to CIM, the Cleveland Institute of Music for a DMA. Um, and, uh, I was very lucky. I was recruited actually to be in the PhD program at Case Western Reserve University concurrently. And they agreed to count my credits on both sides because I was, I was writing already. I was, um, an author of several, uh, articles and posts about African-American classical music. Uh, so they had an interest in actually having me do that as one of their students. And that's where I am now finishing my dissertation. Wow. Wow. I want to go back to your time at Oberlin because, you know, I, I didn't attend a conservatory, but what I've learned over the years is that Oberlin is one of the conservatories that was better than not when it came to serving black students and, and, and people of color. Does, does that mean it's even worse at some of the other conservatories? You know, when we're talking about the continuation of white supremacy in the, in the foundations of the curricula. Uh, it does mean that. <laughs> and also, it, it, it doesn't mean that things are great at Oberlin. That's why I wrote this book, right? Yeah. Uh, especially, I think the unique aspect of Oberlin is that there's a conservatory and a college, right? Oberlin Conservatory and Oberlin College side by side. Mm -hmm. They're under the same umbrella, but they're technically separate institutions that give separate degrees. And so the, the huge advantage uh, in terms of perspective that lent me was that I was spent, I spent a lot of time with African-American students in the college who would say, I don't feel comfortable in that conservatory building. Now, for me as someone who has been brainwashed for a very long time and was going to classical music school since I was seven, right? I would think, well, you know, you have to spend more time here and see because it's good music and you'll like it. And then I started to really think carefully about what it was that was so discomforting for mm -hmm. those students, right? Um, and it's not just that there are people who are white in that space. That's not just what it is. It, that might be part of it. That's not just what it is. It has to do with the standards and modes of conduct and dress and interaction that are off-putting for people who are not intimately familiar with them already. Mm -hmm. And once I realized that, I thought, well, but the entire practice of what we do is racially informed. The way that we conceive of an ideal sound in classical music is actually culturally delimited and culture being something that aligns with race, somewhat racially delineated, right? So the entire project is alienating to many people of color. It was, it was really that experience of talking to students in, uh, in the college and the conservatory but especially the college who said, I don't want to be in this space, no matter what you're doing there, because I don't feel comfortable. And truly to identify what that was, was what helped me uh, get on the path to writing this book. So was there a, a final straw that broke the camel's back in your dialogues that inspired uh, this book? Or did things just build up for so long you decided it was finally time? No, there was. There was a, a straw. It wasn't quite a straw. It was really a moment. But, um, you know, I was, as I'm sure you are, endlessly as we all are, uh, called upon to be on a panel about diversity in classical music. And um, this was going to be in L.A. And it was a perfectly fine panel with very nice people. Um, and we had a, a phone conversation to prep beforehand. Now, I should say also I had gotten connected to the American Society for Aesthetics before that and given a presentation on classical music. African-American classical music 
um, and was thinking already about aesthetics and what that really meant. And I think I had probably gotten funding to write an annotated bibliography for them, which I produced in 2017 or 18. Um, and I remember I was on this, this phone call to prep for the panel. And it was there, there were three of us. And, you know, uh, one person said the usual thing that we always say. And the next person said the thing that they always say. And I said my thing that I always say. We're trying. It's getting better. There are more of us doing this every year. And then I thought, I've been saying this for 20 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this, is, this is some bullshit. I can't. I can't continue just to say this because it doesn't ring true anymore to me. Right? I can't. Um, something is wrong. And I started thinking about it. And it just, this single idea struck me that the aesthetics of classical music do not resonate with many African-American and Latinx people. Mm -hmm. And so inclusion as we currently practice it is a project of assimilation. Just that idea struck me. And that, that, that idea is the, is the thesis of the book. It's the core of the book. It's pretty much everything that I've written online for the past five years. That's been the core of, of those works. I feel badly about it now, but I went to LA after we had that prep session. Um, and the first guy, all great guys, you know, people who are luminaries in their field, right? Stood up and said his thing. And the next guy stood up and said his thing. And then I stood up and I said, I have to disagree. I'm really sorry for my colleagues. I have to say we are assimilating students and they're having a really often a really bad time in conservatories because we're not being cautious or thoughtful in any way in how we do it. Um, and it's a terrible experience and they're being assimilated and we should not practice it this way. And I got a standing ovation. <laughs> uh, which, <laughs> which uh, suggested to me that I had maybe I was onto something, maybe. Uh, and, you know, the, the dam kind of burst. People in the audience saying, yeah, you know what? I had this experience. I had that experience, right? I mean, there was actually one, one person from uh, a major symphony orchestra who talked about how they had had hip-hop night at the symphony. And that was the night when the hall hired extra security and metal detectors. Of course. <laughs> of course, right? So what kind of inclusion is that? And besides, the larger point, that's quite a point, but the larger point is that the idea is to get these people, quote unquote, into the hall so that perhaps they will come back to hear real music, some Beethoven, next week. Mm -hmm. All of it is completely offensive and um can we say this is an ideal way to practice inclusion? Well, definitely not, right? It's funny because when you tell this story and talk about getting a standing ovation in the moment, my response would be, no, don't stand. For, I'm talking about y'all. Y'all y'all, <laughs> y'all are the problem. Do not applaud me right now. <laughs> I know. You're totally right. You're totally right. It was For me, it was a validation of that idea because I was floating it. I was like, what happens if I... Mm -hmm. float this crazy idea are yep. people gonna boo me off stage or hate me and you know if they had actually that could have been even more validating you're right mm -hmm. yeah right yep. because how many of them actually concretely did a 180 and how they were practicing inclusion after that 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 meeting yeah maybe one or two if they yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe you know, you were just using the word assimilation and you use that word in your book. You know, when we were talking earlier about emotional responses to certain vocabulary, in my experience, in my personal experience, the word assimilation has also been that. Was there intentionality behind your use of that word? Is it just what came to mind immediately? I wonder if you can speak to that. Much of it really was because of that singular moment when the phrase came to me. And that phrase came to me and I felt this is for me the perfect way that I would like to describe this. And there's no other way that I feel is more accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly the use of that word, that's an incisive word that does get a reaction. And especially as an administrator, as a dean, I'm known for being fairly careful with language. I deal with very difficult situations with students pretty frequently and have to have to use language very carefully. So usually what I say, I, I really mean it. And so I, I use that word because there's just no other way to describe it. That's, mm -hmm. that's what it is. And if people have a reaction to that word, then they better get used to it because that's what they're doing. And 
another word I want to talk about is Western. Um, you know, once, once upon a time, I felt like I was the only person using the phrase Western classical music. And, you know, now I'm seeing it more and more and even published in, in your book. Uh, I wonder if you can speak to why it's important to put that qualifier Western in front of the phrase classical music and maybe even more broadly, what's to be done with the phrase classical music? Well, so there are many different kinds of classical music, if we even want to use that phrase, right? Let's say that that phrase is referring to a longstanding historical tradition within a culture. And so there's Hindustani classical music, there's Persian classical music, right? There are all different kinds. So uh, I, I was actually very fortunate to have an editor who very pointedly said to me when I floated uh, part of this book as an article previously said, we're not talking about classical music, we're talking about Western classical music, right. excuse you very much, right? And I thought, you know, that's totally right. So um, uh, trying to include that and be consistent now, the problem is even this term is still quite broad. Um, and let's be really honest, right? People don't really want to acknowledge this, but Phil Yule is very good at, at uh, acknowledging this. Most of what we do in conservatories, most of what we do when we're talking about quote unquote classical music is referring to music from about 1700 to 1950 by German speaking composers. Mm -hmm. That's 80% of what we're actually talking about, right? Um, and so one might start to interrogate, why is that how we are delimited in classical music, right? But besides that, there's the idea that I would float next after this book is that of transculturation, mm. which is that American classical music uh, is going to have to change uh, radically if it is to be an equitable cultural product, if it is to not just assimilate people of color, if it is to actually be something that people enjoy in a majority minority America. So transculturation was an idea, or rather a term coined by a Cuban anthropologist uh, in reference to um, cultural um, production under the conditions of unequal power dynamics mm. between two groups, right? Um, and uh, it, it's been used mostly to refer to the cultures of, of Latin America, but I would say that this is something we need here in America, right? Yeah. Uh, because simply to say that we have black people writing symphonies, actually, I was reading about this just er, er, today earlier, um, you know, William Dawson, Florence Price, William Grant Staley wrote symphonies, and some of them would say things like, you know, we've gone from the spiritual to the symphony in 50 years. We've gone to the highest art form. Well, why is the symphony the highest art form? Yeah. I, I love symphonies, don't get me wrong, but why must this be the highest art form? I mean, when I hear John Coltrane, that sounds pretty damn good. Mm -hmm. So uh, why not improvisation, right? Why not more communal ways of making music? Why not more communal ways of engaging with the audience, between audience uh, and, and performer? Um, all those things, I think, are, are critical to think about. I'm going to circle back to some of those people that you were just talking about. But what you've reminded me of, you know, um, my initial critique of the phrase classical music as something that refers to a singular thing for me came from Nina Simone. The first time I watched a documentary and she referred to the music that she created as black classical music. So it's like a giant light bulb went off in my head. I was like, yeah, that. That makes perfect sense. And, you know, even so, even with that being said, I think there are so many uh, so-called classical music audiences that will accept an Indian classical music or a Chinese classical music, even in concert. But as soon as we start talking about black classical music, that's when you'll get the pushback. That's when you'll get, you know, different ideas. I know that the word racist is thrown around so much that a lot of people feel like it's lost its power, but it seems to me that you have to boil it down to that simply. I mean, you have a beautiful symphony and everything is fine. You add 808s on top of it. Now it's inappropriate for the concert hall. So, you know, for ages now, uh, black identity has really served as the shorthand as the opposite to white identity for mainstream white America, mm -hmm. right? It's been the other, the thing that cannot be accommodated. And this is a problem because 
again, as we move into the space of a majority minority America, white America is going to have to start accommodating black American and have to start uh, finding uh, productive ways of integrating culturally. Uh, I don't see any other way for that to happen. That's been happening already. You can't leave your house without hearing black music. You can't walk down the street. You can't go shopping. It's everywhere. That's what pop music is, right? Afro-diasporic music dominates the globe. Um, and of course, the resistance to actually recognizing that, right, is, is, is a problem. Um, so yeah, of course, it's racism. Of course, yeah, of course it is. But, you know, I, I actually want to say the problem is so much bigger than that, because when we say racism, same as white supremacy, we think of someone being racist, a person who is making judgments based on race that are pejorative and negative, right, of an individual. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it's much bigger than that. There's systemic racism. But it's still, I think, a lot bigger than that in terms of the white racial frame, which Phil Ewell invokes, um, and in terms of how white norms, especially culturally and aesthetically, have come to still guide our judgment of culture. So Robin James talks about this, how the aesthetic is political and it's the, one of the most powerful, uh, sorry, I'll say it again. Robin James talks about this, how the aesthetic is one of the most powerful political tools because it's really insidious and you can't see it. But the aesthetic communicates political values, ideas about society, about the self, about gender, about sexuality. Right, all those things are subsumed within the aesthetic, within culture, um, and to the extent to which white culture is determined to make itself the diametric opposite, or to define black culture as its diametric opposite, it's going to be very difficult and quite a struggle for white culture and for white people to to adapt in the future. So, circling back to some of those historical black composers you were talking about, you know, the Florence Prices, the William uh, Levy Dawsons. Even in the most, uh, how can I say, Black-centric manifestations of their work, William uh, Grant Still's Afro-American Symphony, you know, William Levy Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony, you know, even through that framework, we're talking about music centered, at least rooted in Eurocentricity. I understand the importance of highlighting those composers, especially for folks who have never heard of them. I'm still meeting every day, you know, in my work, people who have never heard the name Florence Price. But what's the next step? Are we not still talking about Eurocentric music, even when we platform these historical Black composers? So here's why I would argue we still are talking about Eurocentric uh, music, even if it's by Black composers, especially composers from that era. And not every Black composer, but especially, I think, from the early 20th century. Um, this is a difficult concept for many people, but it's important to look at musical structures as uh, embodying, as I mentioned, certain political and social ideas. So in the orchestra, that has to do with hierarchy. It has to do with how societies should be organized, how people should relate to one another, right? That ideal of, of efficiency versus communication, because you don't talk in the orchestra, right? Uh, and I contrast that with, say, George Lewis and the AACM, um, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, right? Um, the idea of a communal music making where every voice is included. In fact, we know that these are values that African-Americans took with us uh, across the ocean because at, in many African cultures, communal decision making is extremely important, right? Uh, these are values that are just, just different. Uh, that's the case, I think, for many Hispanic cultures as well, right? So the way in which the orchestra is formed communicates a certain implicit ideas about society that align with culture and race. The music itself, in terms of sonata form, other structures, also communicates certain political ideas. So sonata form being the, the best example, uh, it is essentially a dynamic adventure of the hero, right? The primary theme and the primary key, mm -hmm. the key of one, is our hero. The hero goes on a journey. And essentially, it's not a form is organized to provide us with a narrative about the victory of the hero. I should say the hero also, by the way, ventures 
tonally about as far away as he can get. The theme also being masculine. In fact, uh, the secondary and primary themes had been labeled masculine for the primary, feminine for the secondary by theorists, by uh, A.B. Marx in the 19th century, right? Because of the nature of those themes, if you listen to them, Mozart, very easy to hear. The primary theme is masculine in its assertiveness and aggressiveness. That is stereotypically masculine for what they would have thought in that time. And the secondary theme is usually more luscious, more uh, beautiful, uh, usually in a softer dynamic, right? Uh, more connected. So the hero in our primary theme ventures as far away as he can get to a foreign land, Kiev 5, to encounter something beautiful. And then we get into the development where he wrestles with dragons and he has to overcome challenges and obstacles, which we all can relate to. Mm -hmm. And then he returns home to the key of one. And what, what does he bring with him? But the, the feminine secondary theme, right? So it's essentially a military conquest, <laughs> right? Where he goes abroad, finds a beautiful woman, kidnaps her and takes her home. That's one way of looking at it, right? Sure. Uh, and there are different arguments about whether or not that's really, really what's happening, but there are too many theorists who have described it this way. And then we stopped doing that in the mid 20th century because it was not politically correct, right. among other reasons, right? Um, there's that. So that is to say, if Black composers are writing in that form, that form has been designed and evolved to communicate a particular set of social and political ideas around gender and identity, right? Um, I could go further and say even the tonic versus the dominance, the idea of that polarity, mm -hmm. right? The tonic must constantly vanquish the dominant over and over and over again. That's a kind of victory. Not every culture characterizes victory in this way, this sort of assertive, aggressive, dominance way, right? That kind of victory is not even available to every culture necessarily. Right, right. Right. Uh, so I, you know, in my book, I talk about the idea that the blues involves five going to four because it, it, that is a kind of psychological surrender that is necessary, right? In a culture where that sort of omnipresent victory of one over five is not available socially. So not to get too theoretical, I guess I already have, but <laughs> but those are some of the, the ways in which I, I would characterize those works as still being Eurocentric in nature, right? Even if they're by black composers, because they're still implicitly referencing these musical ideas that are just shot through with um, cultural and racial elements. Well, you aren't just theoretical in your book. I think there are many aspects of the book that are very practical, uh, especially the, uh, the chapter where you talk about concrete advice. I probably stood on a chair and started applaud. I, I was a part of your standing ovation. Uh, when I read from that chapter, you know, the point that you were highlighting was it's not only important to hire faculty of certain demographics, but faculty of certain values as well. I've always, you know, argued, and I'm, I'm almost hesitating to, to say this, but I feel like a lot of uh, conservatories, music institutions overall engage this uh, sort of uh, Obama syndrome where we have the Black person there. It doesn't matter that they're perpetuating the same status quo because they're Black. I, I wonder if you can speak to your inclusion of that point specifically in this book. Well, you know, we're getting so much closer, I think, in conservatories to the point of genuine change, actual substantive change. And it's come through first the inclusion of students of color and then faculty and staff of color and then a little bit music by people who are of color. Um, and truly understanding that it's about values, core values, right, that are communicated through the curriculum and the attitudes of professors. Uh, understanding that is that that's a key understanding that most people are still struggling with. But, you know, we all, those of us who have gone through these systems, people like myself, for sure, right, have been assimilated. And so then we're likely to reproduce the same ideas that are already existent in the, in the conservatory without other kinds of instruction or guidance, right? And so that's not helpful for students. They may feel supported by us. That's great. They may feel comfort and safety with us. That's really great. But are they taught to think in a way that helps them be free? Hmm. 
and they taught to search for freedom because otherwise we're all just caught up in the system that has in many ways imprisoned us and at the very least limited our opportunities and our ability to draw upon our own native convictions and artistic ideas uh, as inspiration, right? We're cut off from that. That's what the training does. Um, so for example, um, Jeff Scott, who's our professor of horn at Oberlin, and he has his students improvise, right? Because he thinks that's important. Mm-hmm. In addition to learning their excerpts and their scales and whatever else they do, right? Partly because he knows that as a performing musician, he found a lot of success being able to do things like that and not just playing horn excerpts, right? Which is increasingly the case, right, for music students from uh, graduates of conservatories. So, um, yeah, I think that isn't to say that hiring a white professor who's going to teach black music is better than hiring a black professor who's going to teach white music, <laughs> but it could be it could be depending on the personalities involved there's no guarantee that just because someone is is a certain color that they're going to advance the attitude that you need yeah and i think that's a very important point as well in in graduate school um i took the black music class that was offered it was called african-american music it was taught by a white woman who blew my mind away in many cases. I mean, really dissecting everything to make these exact points. So I, I think that's a, a good point to make as well. Um, and, you know, you when you use the word uh, freedom, you reminded me also of the equity chapter of your book. Again, I, I so appreciated a chapter dedicated to that word, because it seems like we're reminding people of its definition and what it really means uh, every day. Uh, oftentimes, uh, as you included in your book, when we talk about equity, there's that image of um, people standing behind a fence and, you know, equity being, you know, each person of different heights needs different help uh, to look over the fence. I think that's a pretty simple concept for people to understand. I've always tried to go a step forward and say, why do we have the fence? You know, why can't we just tear down that fence? And now everybody can see no matter what, no one needs, you know, various uh, resources depending on their, you know, metaphoric height. I wonder what your ideas on that are, this, you know, embodiment of liberation where we don't even think about the fence. We don't even think about the barriers that require equitable practices in the first place. Oh, that's a great question. I love tearing down the fence. Um, and I struggle with whether it's possible, whether or not the fence is also just a representation of the nature of human struggle mm. and the, 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 the kinds of issues that we all will have to deal with no matter what happens, no matter what kind of arrangement of society we come to, regardless of whether we have universal basic income or not, <laughs> right? right? There are issues that we, we all are going to have that make things hard for us. But... I would say in the time, for the time being, for me, the things that I've seen and the experiences I've had with students are just so concrete and so motivating for me to make the argument for equitable practices in conservatories, because people do not have a, a real understanding of the degree to which some students truly suffer. You know, I mean, it, I, I think actually, or actually I'm quite certain that it's unimaginable to most uh, faculty and staff who have had privilege and comfort most of their lives. Um, it's just not imaginable, you know, to imagine that there are students who don't have a, a single living relative who can help them. Mm-hmm. Students who don't have access to a bank account. No one in their family has a bank account or a cell phone, right? What that actually means, what that looks like on the ground. You know, I, I had a student who called me because they're, um, you know, they had a parent struggling with drugs and they were, kicked out of their house uh, for Christmas, which was also their birthday. And so uh, because of the nature of the relationship I have with my dean, uh, because of Oberlin's, at least in our current operating culture, I had the space to argue for equitable practices. Because of that, I was able to use um, funds to help the student get a place to live, to sleep, right? And not be on the street Mm -hmm. uh, in December. Right now, I don't think that most folks in conservatories truly understand that it's quite certain that in your school, there's somebody or has been somebody who's gone through something like that. It's just certain. That's just the nature of American society, especially if you're including more black and brown students, more low income students. Right. Um, 
And so, you know, if anything, I just want to really impress upon administrators and faculty the need for uh, humane practices and for understanding the challenges that students go through and trying to help them succeed rather than putting up obstacles. Uh, like trying to really understand why it is that student didn't turn that homework assignment in. Right. Is it because they actually work a shift from six to 11 every night at a Home Depot or something like that? Right. I had a student like that. And yeah, that student did not turn things in, um, but I helped them pass, right? Because that student was working hard and studying and trying to do the work. There were just so many obstacles, right? Yeah. Yep. So, you know, that, that for me is a really, really important point and the most important part of my work at Oberlin. And the privilege that I've had has been to work with students like that who are so inspiring because they're getting over those kinds of obstacles themselves. Right. And most of them don't even know to ask for help. They don't know. I have to find them and say, hey, you know what? I think you need some help. So has the Supreme Court made actions like the ones that you just described more difficult for all of us? I mean, that's something that we're definitely talking about in, in my circles. You know, how do we continue with demographic based uh, eligibility criteria or just everyday equitable practices? in light of what the highest court in the uh, in the country has struck down for folks who don't know affirmative action. What, what do you think will be the impacts of that decision specifically on the arts and our equitable initiatives? I think it's hard to tell thus far really what the impact will be because it really depends on how it's enforced. And I would uh, emphasize that equity practices first and foremost do not align with protected categories, right? With, with uh, demographic groups. They have to do with uh, finding out what a specific person needs to, to, to succeed. That often has to do with income, which relates to race, but is not predictive, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, there's no need to think, well, no, I can no longer give black students X or I can no longer give students who identify as Y, X. That's not how it works, right? Try to figure out what each student actually needs, right? Depending on their circumstances, their personal circumstances, not their identity. So from that perspective, equity practices should not be impacted at all if they're being practiced correctly, mm -hmm. right? Um, besides that, frankly, the one hope that I have is these institutions are still going to have to continue to diversify if only because American society is becoming more diverse. Mm -hmm. There's no escape from that reality. And so if demographic inclusion is no longer the pressure release that it used to be, then they may actually have to begin diversifying in terms of their curriculum and values yep. in order to entice talented students of color, which would not be a bad thing. It seems like the the ignorance on these topics is the the one of the pulling points. I mean, if I thought the way that I thought now, you know, all of my, you know, factoid learning aside, you know, when I was a 17 or 18 year old, I don't know if I would have been here in the first place. I'd have gone to Howard or some other HBCU and and done something else. It's 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 really interesting. It seems like, you know, no matter how embedded we are in this work, we're always playing catch up because at the end of the day, we are a result of this very system that we're trying to dismantle or at least transform in some way. Absolutely. And so that's why also I would say that young people have no obligation to listen to us or, or to me. Because <laughs> <laughs> honestly, everything that I'm saying is, is really a distillation of certain ideas combined with things that young people have told me. So uh, ideally, this is more uh, their message, or rather I have accurately portrayed the message that they've been trying to tell me. Mm -hmm. That's also why the last chapter of the book is all transcripts of interviews with, with students, because I think that's, um, that's much more compelling than what I have to say. You know, <laughs> you, you, you have to hear it from, from them. That, that's what I've been hearing, and that's what I'm trying to distill and tell people. I have a, a couple more questions for you, but before I ask those, how can people uh, check out your book, um, buy it, read it, and support your continued work? Yeah, it's on Amazon. Uh, you, you can find it there, Assimilation versus Integration in Music Education. It's also on Rutledge's website. Uh, you can search for it there. Um, I'm sure it's on a variety of 
other sites, but I also have various blog posts that speak to these ideas, and the ideas are more important than just buying my book. So if, if you inter, uh, you know, if you'd like to hear more about what I'm talking about, just go to Medium and Google my article on um, racialized aesthetics in classical music, or my blog, my, uh, my post on uh, aesthetics for birds is classical music racist and aesthetic approach. Uh, I have an article in in the journal Act and some other places. So there are lots of places, if you think these ideas are interesting and you want to learn more, there are lots of places where you can get access to them. So as promised, I want to circle back to the well-meaning Black musicians. So, you know, something that I get a lot of pushback on, but that I've, I feel so solid in is the fact that white supremacist systems need our affirmation and need our participation so that there's the creation of the good ones, or you see, there's no problem here. We have, you know, insert black musician in a major orchestra. You know, what are you talking about? Oh, I wonder what your response is to this, uh, to this phenomenon. What is the responsibility of, uh, and I'm not going to name any names in particular, but what, what is the responsibility of the, the black principal musician of insert orchestra or the the black dean of this school of music or you know black folks in positions of power who from the perspectives of folks like me are actually perpetuating the system more than they're dismantling it yeah so that's absolutely true you know and that's that's part of what spurred me to write the book what what i'm trying to communicate in the book that idea that demographic diversity is not the answer it is the answer to the extent that it is producing or has the potential to produce people who think differently. It has that potential, right? Um, so that's a positive. To the extent that it's simply replicating the same training for people of color, that is not something I would frame as a positive. Mm -hmm. uh, not that people of color should not be able to play Mozart and Beethoven and Bach. We should, we do, we can, and we will. And I really think we should move past that question you know, I think generations now are moving past that question. It's not a question of whether or not black people can play Mozart. What are you talking about? Of course we can play Mozart. It's yeah. the question does not even exist anymore. That's a question I think that older people are still trying to answer and trying to prove to themselves because of the conditions in which they grew up. That is no longer the question. The question is how are we going to be free and find freedom in our music making that is an authentic representation of ourselves and not have to suppress parts of ourselves as we undergo our training. You know, I think all, all people, I think, because it's so conservative as an environment, right? The conservatory is, is, is a conservative environment in its power relations and its um, approach to culture. So all people, I think, feel some measure of having to repress parts of their identity that don't resonate with that environment when they're there. But that's much greater for people of certain identity groups, right? Especially people of color. So how can we be free of that, right? I mean, for us, uh, folks who are in those positions, I think, you know, many of them know what I'm talking about. It's just a matter of what is possible to do, mm -hmm. right? And most of them also have become, become accustomed to ways of operating that work for them and work for their institutions. And so they push their incremental change where they can. And I can't fault anyone for that. That's not a bad thing, but um, I can't say either that dynamic action is possible or, um, you know, ideal in anyone's given situation because it just it may not work, right? Mm -hmm. But wherever possible, thinking more radically about the options in terms of uh, degree programs, in terms of curriculum, the core values of the institution, I suppose that would be my main message. How can you alter the communication of the core values or really alter those values themselves. How can you get at what those values are and then begin to actually change them? Not surface level changes like the color of the people who are on campus. That's great. But the core values are exclusionary. So think about how you can identify what those are at your institution and how you can change them. Is this going to make us free? I feel like that's just the question that needs to be asked before we pick up our instruments choose repertoire any is this going to get us a step closer <laughs> uh I, I wanted to tie a bow uh, on this dialogue uh by asking a question that 
uh, Tavis Smiley asked me. Um, he he, I've, I consider myself a pretty good interviewer and interviewee. He just about stumped me with this one. So um, we were talking about historical Black composers because, again, I'm in front of an audience, his audience, that may not know, you know, the name William Grant still, you know, so we're getting into that. And, you know, Tavis, you know, turns to me and he says, well, brother, I love hearing about all these historical Black composers. Who were they writing this music for? And and th- and that was another light bulb moment for me. And I, and I tra- traversed the question, I, I think, just fine. But I wonder what your reaction to that question is when we hold up these historical uh, Black composers, maybe even the contemporary ones. The concert hall is still predominantly white. At the end of the day, historically and today, who is all of this work for? We can talk about diversifying classical music. We can talk about dismantling status quo within classical music. Is it all not just for white people at the end of the day? Absolutely it is. And that's why demographic diversity is not the answer, right? I mean, again, uh, there are black composers who compose uh, in a style that communicates different social and political values. And that's a bit different. Thinking about and, you know, and still, I think, has, has done that in certain cases. Price has, has done that in, in certain cases with their references. Right. But. You know, I know that for me, I could go to a black student at Oberlin who's not in the conservatory and I could say, hey, we're playing some William Grant still in the concert hall next week. You want to come? And their answer would be, but everything else is the same. Mm-hmm. The only difference is that the composer is black and that's good. I'd like to know more about that maybe, but tell me why I should engage in, in this experience, in this listening experience, in this aesthetic experience, because every, every other part of it does not resonate with what I want to see in, in the listening experience, right? Um, so that's why I'm talking about transculturation, talking about more radical changes that have to be made if we're actually going to call this a diverse art form that reflects the values of a 21st century America. That's what an American classical music should be, right? So it needs to reflect uh, a more diverse range of musical practices and values. Oberlin Orchestra and Conservatory Choral Ensemble in that performance uh, excerpt there uh, from a work called The Ordering of Moses. That's a piece of music by Nathaniel Dead. It's actually making the rounds uh, a lot these days, so uh, glad to see that uh, there's some students getting an opportunity to engage that piece of music. Um, Again, I hope that y'all will uh, check out Chris Jenkins' uh, latest book, Assimilation vs. Integration in Music Education. Even if you aren't in music education specifically, I think the book definitely shines a light on ways our current systems train us toward colonized thinking. We're always using the phrase classically trained, right? Well, now more than ever, it's time for us to challenge what it means to be trained, so to speak, and to push our teaching systems forward. So I hope that y'all will check that out. Huge thanks to Chris Jenkins. All right. So about a week ago, I heard that Cornell West was running for president. I'm rooting for everybody black. So there wasn't much more that I needed to hear at that point, but I did take a listen to his latest interview on the breakfast club and the way that he used music as a through line to make his, make his various points. I I thought it was really phenomenal. Uh, I wanted to share a little bit. Here's a little bit of that interview to give you an idea of what uh, was being discussed and how he would, was uh, uh, roping music into the whole dialogue. Part of the problem these days, we got too many black leaders who are no longer on the love train, they're on the gravy train. Ooh, mm-hmm. they want the, they about the mm-hmm. money. It's about, about that money. The Benjamins, mm. Wu-Tang Clan, Cream. Cash rules <laughs> everything around me. But it don't have to rule me. Ooh, rule everything around right. me. That's mm. right. That's the mm. genius that's from right. Staten Island, right? That's, that's right. right. That's real. The highest standards that we set are our black musicians. Black musicians are the vanguard of the black freedom struggle because it's in black music that black people experience a foretaste of the freedom that we want. 
the anthem of my brothers in prison for 41 years. It could be in Greensville and in, in Poughkeepsie. It could be in Sing Sing. I'm taught in Rawway. I'm taught in Garden City. What's the anthem? Zoom by the Commodores. Freedom dream. I like to get away. Well, I like to get away. What you want to do? To get some distance from all these lies, this suffering, all of this pain, all this, all these wounds and scars. And what you gonna do with it? I'm gonna make it better for everybody else, not just mm -hmm. myself. And That's to right. be on the gravy train is to be in it just for yourself and forget about. You know what, what it makes me think of is that classical music again has trained so many of us to think inside of the box. The musicians that Dr. West named there didn't even. Noah Box, and that's why we're still saying their names today. In a similar way, I believe we've been trained to think that a two-party system is the only way and that a third-party candidate just isn't a viable option, so we shouldn't even try. Well, I don't believe that. Maybe Dr. West won't win, but he's getting my vote. I believe that we can shape our future. And that includes this political system. The powers that be want us to think that those of us on the more progressive side of politics have to vote blue as a means of keeping out the red. But I'm here to say that without student loan forgiveness or reparations, I really don't have much of a reason to continue in that mode of thinking. Uh, if you're planning on voting for Joe next year, great. I'm a huge, uh, you know, I'm not here to argue with you. I'm, I'm a fan of you. So <laughs> I don't want no smoke. Same if even if you're voting for someone on the other side. But I hope that, you know, either way, you will at least imagine what it could be like to shift the political future of our country. If we all do it, it'll get done. It's as simple as that. If, if just some of us do it, it's not it's not going to happen. We're going to be sitting in this same situation. Okay. And, you know, maybe I'll change my mind this time next year and decide to cast a ballot for somebody else. But with my name change, with my move to New York and everything else that's going on in my, in my life, I believe that it's my responsibility to take a chance on us, take a chance on our future, on the, the most marginalized people, people who want things to shift for the better. I'm taking a chance on all of that um, and on our ability to thrive in a world without this single political line splitting us down the middle. I believe that this can be done. And as we continue to think about ways to decolonize classical music, let's also think of ways to decolonize our political systems and everything else surrounding us. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope the political talk didn't scare you away this time. <laughs> Pretty short there, but you know, just something that was on my heart. I uh, hope y'all enjoyed and I will see y'all talk to y'all again next week, actually from my studio in New York City. So wish me luck on this little transition. Talk to y'all then. Peace. Peace.